Sometimes the most obscure verses in the Bible immediately precede the most famous verses in the Bible. Today's text, look at the background to John 3.16. You know what John 3.14 and 15 are? A lot of people don't know what John 3.14 and 15 are about. They refer to the snake was lifted up in the desert. And so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes in him would not perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. That whoever believes in him would not die but have everlasting life. When you buy one of those books for a high school graduate, do you ever write Jeremiah 29.10 in it? Have you ever seen an athlete, somebody who's about to run a marathon, write Philippians 4.12? Right, we never know those verses that come immediately before the most famous verses, but today, because of this text, you will know the Old Testament background to the most famous verse in the New Testament. Numbers chapter 21 provides the background for John 3.16. Nicodemus in John 3.16 missed the metaphorical significance of what Jesus was saying. Jesus told Nicodemus in the same discourse that would lead to John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not die but have everlasting life. That same teaching, Jesus said, you must be born again. And then Nicodemus took this teaching about being born again and applied it literally and physically. And the results were gross and awkward. Do not, like Nicodemus, miss the metaphorical significance of the imagery that God is using. Because there's more than a banal physical event taking place here. This is a spiritual teaching that is eternal in nature. For context, the Israelites were the product of a miracle themselves. Like they were brought forth from the slaves of Egypt into their own nation. It was wandering through the Exodus, and that's where we meet them in the book of Numbers. We as a church move book by book through the Bible. We're currently in the book of Numbers. Moses had just been used of God to utterly humiliate the world's pagan superpower with a stick. And then his people, recipients of the most epic miracles on the largest physiological scale any other peoples, began to betray him began to complain against God, began to rebel against God. And so God disciplines his people. And then, in these events, in Numbers chapter 21, they rebel against God yet again. And so yet again, God disciplines his people by sending these fiery serpents from among them. And when people would be bitten by these serpents, they would die. What have we seen, though, as we studied Genesis, as we studied other texts, every time God pours out his discipline among his people or his wrath for sin against people who rebel against him, every time God pours out discipline and wrath, what does he also provide every single time? Grace, mercy, and deliverance. When he poured down the waters that would bring about the flood, what did he also provide? The ark, deliverance, even in the midst of his own wrath and grace. Every time there is wrath, there's also grace. When he pours out his discipline upon his people in this judgment from the fiery serpents, he also provides a way of deliverance. God instructed Moses to mount a fiery serpent to a pole and lift it up. And if the people were bitten, they would look to the serpent that was raised up and they would be healed. 
This is the background of this text. As we cover this text, you're going to see a lot of places throughout the desert named. I think the geographic context of Scripture is important. Can I, can I show you what ground we traverse in these texts? All right, these, these events begin around Kadesh Barnea. The people are thirsty. God miraculously provides a way for them to drink. Now, the way that God miraculously provides water for them is kind of fumbled because Moses inadvertently or perhaps deliberately takes credit for the glory of God. He is listed as the most patient man ever, but he is at his wit's end with the people of Israel. And he words the proclamation of God's will in such a way that he would get glory for it. And rather than striking the rock once, he strikes it twice. He doesn't, he doesn't do what God instructed, and he takes away from the holiness of God in the way that he bestows upon God's people God's provisions for them. He puts himself in a position, along with Aaron, to be able to get credit for what God does. Here's Numbers 20, verse 9 through 13. Today we're going to focus on 21, verse 4. But here's what Moses said. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. That's important because God commanded him. And then he looks like he's going to carry it out as commanded. But then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and through them he showed himself holy. If you aspire unto the pastorate, listen carefully. The battlefield is fraught with the corpses of pastors who have taken credit for what God did. You understand? I get zero credit for what God has done in this beautiful, vibrant, growing church. Do you understand that? I don't even have a royalties contract for the glory, okay? I get 0% glory. God gets all the credit. What have I really taught? Isn't, I've just taught this, right? I didn't write this. All we've done is gone book by book to the word of God, and God's doing amazing things. If God is calling you one day to be a pastor, take heed of what happens when God's leaders try to take glory for God's holiness. God takes that seriously, and he disciplined Moses and Aaron just like he disciplined pastors today. You've seen it. You've seen it. Heed the cautionary tale. From this, they travel to Mount Hor, and then in chapter 20, in the verses preceding today's text, that's where Aaron dies. Moses doesn't die yet, but he is told by God, like what we just read, that he would not enter the promised land. Rather, as his entry in the Hall of Faith chronicles, he would welcome the promised land from a distance. So because he tried to intercept the holiness and the glory of God, tried to bask upon himself some of that to which God was entirely due, Moses does not enter the promised land. Now here is, here, here's, here's how the text opens. It tells us that like from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Now when it says the way to the Red Sea, this could refer to two things. One, it could mean that from Kadesh Barnea, which is kind of between the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea, they moved back toward the Red Sea. 
Okay, that's where the, that's a plausible theory because that's where, that's where the beginning of what's called the king's highway is found. But it also could mean that they went by what's called the way of the Red Sea. It's like this road, this pathway that connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea. So either way, either interpretation applies because they either went this way and north or this way and north. I'll show you the King's Highway. Take a look at this sequence. Let's begin at the Gulf of Aquaba. See this body of water? This is the northeastern arm of the Red Sea. The Red Sea has this oblong shape to it with these two arms that stretch out from uh, atop it. The northeastern one is called the Gulf of Aquaba. That's where the King's Highway begins. It's a probable starting place for these chapters, the, these, these three chapters events. This is Mount Hor. Now, even the location of Mount Hor is in dispute because I've read three or four different atlases and they, they have two different locations for Mount Hor. Either way, it's in route to where we're heading now. This is the Zered Brook. Bible atlases aren't entirely sure where the border for Moab ended and the, uh, the border for Edom ended, but I believe that the, the Zered Brook is a likely naturally occurring border. Today, there's this deep canyon because 3,500 years ago, that, that canyon may not have been quite so present, but I believe that this river provides a naturally occurring border between these two nations. Either way, Israel was surrounded by enemies on both sides. And there's bad blood between twin brothers, one of whom was the progenitor of Israel, that paints the context for why, even though we're looking at a bunch of nations listed, you're seeing the backstory fulfilled. This, this is a dangerous, precarious place to be. Moab was descended from some of the other people we've studied in the book of Genesis. The Midianites, whom we also meet in this text, were also descended from Abraham. And then also the Edomites were descended from Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, 17 and 22, that I will make a great nation through you and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. He promised your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky upon one iteration, as numerous as the sand on the seashore on another iteration. And this promise was then passed on to his son, Isaac. And then Isaac had twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first. Now, typically, the way the practice would go is the firstborn son would inherit that promise. But according to Romans 9, so the purposes of God and election might stand before Jacob and Esau were even born, before they'd done anything right or wrong, but just so that God's sovereignty would be proven correct. He chose, he preordained that the older Esau would serve the younger Jacob. And then Jacob had a son named Joseph. And now Jacob's name, which was changed to Israel, becomes the namesake for the nation whose story we're reading in the book of Numbers. These two twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, are used of God, once again, to just prove God's own sovereignty. You'll see more about this in the book of Romans. But in order to fully understand the geographic context, I want you to know some of the backstory as to why it's such a big deal to be on the border of Edom. To be on the border of Moab is precarious enough. They worship Chemosh there. They worship Molech there. They sacrifice their children in fire to get a better life there. And on the other side, it's not much better. It's the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, with whom they have this bad blood dating back, dating back several centuries. Esau, the firstborn of the twins, was pretty hot-headed. And he one time comes back from a long hunt and he sees Jacob and Jacob's cooking. He's got a bowl of lentil soup. And in a moment of weakness, which Paul the apostle equates to adultery almost, like he, 
he forsakes his promised blessing as the one who would inherit everything that was bestowed upon Abraham, everything that was bestowed upon Isaac that he would receive. Instead, he said, look, Jacob, I'll give you my blessing if you just give me that bowl of lentil soup. Now, I've been to Carabas. I've had lentil soup. It's, it's pretty good. It's not that good, though. <laughs> and so Esau even promises that he'll give away this blessing. But what you're going to see in his interaction with Jacob is that even though he promised to give it away, even though he committed to sacrifice it, he still wants to keep it anyway. Don't be too hard on Esau. Have you done the same thing? I want to sacrifice something but receive it still back. It's not really sacrifice, is it? And then Jacob, meanwhile, he's no saint, really. He's coached by his mother to deceive his blind father into giving him that blessing. It's so funny. Esau thinks that he can give away something that was already preordained of God that he wouldn't receive. And Jacob is using trickery as advised by his mom to receive something that really, in all actuality, it was preordained of God that he would receive it. God is ultimately sovereign in all this. He has his will achieved, but here's how it plays out. When we approach our study of the book of Romans next year, I want you to understand the background here. I want you to understand why Israel was so nervous to be on the border of this country of Edom. Isaac speaking his blessing over Jacob, says this in Genesis 27. See, the smell of my son, he thinks it's Esau, is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. You're gonna see this same promise reiterated from the mouth of the pagan prophet Balaam enlisted and all he can do is bless Israel. He reiterates the same blessing. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. What Isaac doesn't know is that that's Jacob in disguise pretending to be Esau. Then later on in Genesis 27, you see Isaac's blessing over Esau. Esau realizes what has happened. He tells Isaac. Isaac freaks out and trembles. This is not Isaac's blessing that comes from his own authority. He lacks what the academics call the performativity to declare somebody something. He's just speaking on God's behalf. He's just God's mouthpiece. It is not his to redact the blessing from the trickster Jacob and give it back to Esau. He must, despite Esau's despair, give Esau the leftovers. And the result actually colors our understanding of the geography of the Bible. Listen to what I mean. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. As they travel to the land of Edom, they are traveling through the most barren and arid part of the desert. This is a fulfillment of what Isaac prophesied. There it is. The fact that Edom is located where it is in an arid and dry conditions on the bank of the Dead Sea with the highest salinity in the world is the fulfillment of what Isaac spoke over Esau. And when we study the book of Romans next year, we'll see more of how, how God was opposed to Esau plays out in salvation as we understand it today. There's a clear link between the teaching of Esau's divine hindrance in Romans 9 and the prophet's letter, Obadiah, to the nation of Edom, the book of Obadiah, wherein God explains why he is opposed to the nation of Edom. There is bad blood that goes back centuries between these nations. But you also need to know that the last time these two nations saw one another, things actually went pretty well. Based on Isaac's words, 
to Esau, when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. It sounds kind of violent. Here's how it actually played out in Genesis 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. Jacob was very nervous. You guys will remember in our study of Genesis, we saw where he had choreographed an elaborate sequence of bows to make sure that Esau felt at home and was less likely to attack him. And so when Jacob sees Esau with 400 men, he thinks they're going to murder all of them. And so he sends the women and children out front and bows seven times himself. All this is a, is a b- bizarre and overly abundant, superfluous gesticulation to try to show Esau, I'm submitting to you. Please don't kill me. Please don't murder everybody. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, and then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Like the fulfillment of Isaac's blessing over him was actually quite beautiful. It was a reconciliation between two brothers in a way. So even as these two nations Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and Esau, whose name was changed to Edom, even though since birth they've been at war with each other, there actually is a glimmer of hope in Genesis 33 when the two nations meet one another. Let's look at Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and now you know why. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he, is, that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And the people of Israel set out and camped at Oboth. And when they set out from Oboth, they camped at Ai Abraham, like the wilderness of Abraham is what this means. In the wilderness, that is opposite of Moab, toward the sunrise on the eastern side of the nation of Moab. From there, they set out and camped in the valley of Zered. That's why I think the Zered Brook is likely the border. From there, they set out and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, for the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord... Waheb and Sufa and the valleys of Arnon and the slope of the valleys that extends from the seat of Ar and leans to the border of Moab. And from there they continued to Be'er, that is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together so that I may give them water. Then Israel sang this song, spring up, O well, sing to it, the well that the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staffs. And from the wilderness, they went on to Matana, and from Matana to Nahaliel, and from Nahaliel to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley lying in the region of Moab by the top of Pisgah that looks down on the desert. And this will set the geographic context for next week's sermon. In your small group curriculum, you will have covered verses 6 through 9, and then referred to Matthew 1, 18 through 25. We will cover this text and point to another moment in the Gospels, where you see this story is the background to a New Testament text. 
Here in the book of Numbers, we see the shadow of the cross upon the Exodus sands. These are events to which Jesus would refer. Jesus is not, as is a popular hermeneutic, against the God of the Old Testament. He was present for everything that takes place. He is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament foreshadows and prophesies. He and he alone. When we go back to the beginning of the text, back to verse 4, we see that the people became impatient on the way. I feel attacked. Has anybody else been impatient on the way? Like God's promised that he's given you the promised land. Like you know, you know God's taking you somewhere. And you know that he's promised good to you. You know that it's better God's way. You're living out God's will. But man, you're just getting impatient on the way. Has anybody else been impatient on the way? I have. You see our reflection in God's people? They became impatient on the way. Like they know that God's good. He's taken them to the promised land. It's just, come on, God. Can you do it on my time instead of yours? And then they begin to complain. And then there's an inconsistency in their complaint. Did you see this in verse five? Did you see the incoherence of their complaint against God? Complaints against God are always incoherent. They must be. Think on it. Like in verse five, it's quite obvious. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So which is it? Like, is there no food, or do you loathe the food that you have? Any complaint levied against God has an inconsistency within it, because God is perfect. It's rooted in impatience or mistrust of him. Every single complaint ever levied against God. And this one is quite clear. Have have, have your kids ever gone to the pantry? And, And they're like, there's no food! And what they really mean is like, we are facing a dire shortage of fruit by the foot. (laughs) Like, there's no gushers. Where are the Belvedas? Where are the Oreos, the thin kind? There's no food. (laughs) And like, you just went to Costco. You're looking at the food. Like, it's not, it's not that there's no food. It's that you don't want the food that's provided. And so you're saying there's no food. The Israelites were miraculously fed by God. Like their day would start going out to like gather up the miracles. Okay, the manna that God would miraculously provide for them. And they would cook for this. Like these sweet angel sticky buns. And, and they got tired of it. They became jaded to the same menu all the time. And, and rather than still giving thanks to God for his provision, they would complain, how about some variety, God. They're complaining against the miracle. Do you realize that like, if God were to shower your house with, with miracles that appear like dew on the ground every morning, and you went outside your house, and you gathered up the miracles, even made a machine that gathered miracles for you, you know what would happen? You'd get jaded with the miracles, and you'd complain because the miracles would become the new status quo. And you'd want more miracles on top of that. If your faith is dependent upon signs and wonders and miracles, it's not faith. It's quite logical. Hebrews 11.1 says, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. And we walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus had this to say in Matthew 16 about the demand for miracles, the demand for signs and wonders. It said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to except for the sign of Jonah. If you demand miracle upon miracle, and if God provided every miracle you ever asked for, you would complain and want more miracles. 
There's no people who has ever seen more miracles of God than the Old Testament Exodus Israelites. And there's no people who complain to God more than the Old Testament Israelites. So you may think that what you need is a miracle of God. And you may insist, I'll believe in God if God does a miracle for me first. But what you're actually doing is telling God to submit to you before you'll believe in him. My friend, it doesn't work like that. He is Lord. You confess that. Your faith in him ought not be predicated upon his submission to you first. I'll believe in you if you dance to the tune I play for you. Now dance, God. When he doesn't dance, therefore God does not exist. Right? If your faith in God is predicated upon his obedience to you and miraculous provision for you, see here in the example of the Israelites the proof of the opposite. You will just become spoiled to the miracles that saturate the ground around your home every single day. And then you'll demand more. And you'll demand more and you'll demand more. Instead, would you just believe in faith already? Would you just, by the Holy Spirit of God, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and be saved. Be saved, be saved, be saved. By, great, by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And would you take a moment as well, would you just thank God? Would you thank God for your front door? Would you thank God for your home? Just, do, do, just take a second. Because I know that you may ask, like, I'll believe in God if he miraculously provides more. I'm sick of this food. There's no food. Okay, which, which one is it? Make up your mind. Take a, take a second. See the incoherence of that complaint. And would you go before God? And would you just thank God for your front door? Would you thank God for your car, even if it's ugly? God... Thank you for my ugly car. Uh, you have provided for me. You've given me something. All my needs are met. I made it here today because you've always put food on the table. I made it here today because you provided me in this spiritual community right here. You're always good. You don't have to, you don't have to give me my wish list that, that never ends in order for me to believe in you. I believe in you now by faith. Right? Be thankful to God for that which he has miraculously provided for you. Do not be like that which God warns against. Verses 8 and 9 describe this serpent that is, that is lifted up. And the text says in, in the English Standard Version that it was a bronze serpent, but has this footnote that says it was copper. And if you brought your King James Bible, it'll say that it was brass. So what, what was this thing made out of already? All right, in the Biblica Hebraica Studargensia, the original Greek word here is that for bronze. That's what the English Standard Version interprets it. The, the King James chose to use the word brass instead, even though it's another Hebrew word for brass. But the bottom line is this. God did not prescribe which type of metal the thing should be made out of. He said, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. So whether it was bronze, copper, or brass, all of which are shiny brown metals. Agreed? The substance itself does not matter. What matters is that Moses obeyed and he constructed the thing and now the result is a shiny brown metal serpent that is lifted up. This is a snake on a pole and it has clear correlation and cultural influence today over that emblem of a snake that is lifted up. Have you ever, if you pull out your, your health insurance card, you'll likely see a pole with serpents on it, won't you? Because it's, it's often associated with medical care. Now, now this, is, this is attributed frequently to the staff of Hermes, the pagan god Hermes. It's referred to as a caduceus. So like a snake on a pole that is lifted up and associated with medicinal care is referred to historically as the caduceus. And the most ancient depiction of this pagan god Hermes wielding a caduceus dates back to 500 B.C., 
However, there, there were two historians, Frothingham and Ward, who performed a study on this. They believe it's possible that Hermes was a reiteration of an oriental god, in which case it would actually date back to 3000 BC. Nonetheless, the overwhelming archaeological evidence points to Hermes first wielding a staff with snakes on it in the year 500 BC. Out of curiosity, I looked up the Wikipedia entry on the Caduceus because these events took place in 1500 BC, a full 1,000 years before the earliest iteration of Hermes wielding a caduceus. And I saw that the Wikipedia entry on the caduceus did not give a single mention to the book of Numbers and its reference, so I fixed the Wikipedia entry. (laughs) This symbolism is deliberate. It's deliberate. God has shown them the very picture of the thing that would afflict them. And if they would look to the source of their affliction, the fiery serpents that bite them, they would be healed. The color of the metal is deliberate because it would have direct influence over what the temple would one day look like. Because one of the first steps upon entry to the temple was to plunge one's hands into the brazen altar at the onset where you'd see your reflection and the shiny metal full of, its, full of water. And you, as you'd plunge your hands in, you would see it clouded with the dust from your hands. What a humbling thing to see your reflection as you are and see your own filth cloud the water. And then, then and only then, in brutal, honest self-introspection, were you ready to enter the temple and worship Yahweh. And you'll see that same burnished bronze come up in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, where Jesus is there. He's present. He says that his feet were like burnished bronze. This same fiery metal color will appear later in the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Do you think that it's deliberate? Do you think that God is being intentional and deliberate in all of the imagery that he casts before us here? The text that follows is so seldom taught that I had to go back to the year 1867 to find a comparable sermon on this passage. It's so funny. There's nothing in MacArthur's archive, nothing on Piper. uh, Platt gave a one-minute radio devotional on it. Chandler hasn't taught about it. I can't, uh, like, nobody teaches this book, and they're missing out, aren't they? I mean, this is the background to the gospel itself. You know know who taught on, on this passage about the well in the desert? The last person I could find who published a prominent sermon on this was Charles Spurgeon. So, we're in fairly good company, aren't we? (laughs) Charles Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington said this, you observe that previously the people pitched their tents at one time by the brooks of Arnon. There appears to have been an exceeding abundance of water where they then were, but immediately they moved into the wilderness where there was not a single drop to quench their thirst. So it is with us. At what time we are abounding in every good thing, rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory, and at another time we discover how great our weakness is. Faith is at a very low ebb, and joy seems as though the frost of doubt has nipped its root. But great as the changes of our experience certainly are, our needs never change. You have to hear this with like a thick British accent, okay? Whether they found water or not, the people always needed water. The great camp must always have a supply or perish for the lack of it. So at all hours and in all places, believers need the grace which only their Lord can give them. They carry no supplies with them. They are daily dependent upon their God. All my springs are in you, said David, and every heir of heaven must learn this truth from experience. Streams in the desert indeed. 
They arrive at a place that is dry and their throats are parched and God miraculously provides. And so they sing a song, spring up, oh well. This is a song of gratitude to God for his miraculous provisions in the desert. At our house most days, we glut ourselves on joy. But that's not every day. There are often days where there's a joy famine. Anybody else experience joy famines in your personal walk, in your home? Have you seen God provide these wells for his people when they're parched? Do you see the relevance, the ever-relevance of the book of Numbers? That much of the Christian walk is a desert. So when you come to the well, Christian, you drink deeply because there's more desert to tread before you. And as you walk with God, you will look back upon your walk and you will see that it is punctuated with wells given by God. I'm gonna ask a question, and with the first two words, you'll already know the answer, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Could God, could God have provided a well that overflowed every five steps of the Exodus? He could have, but he did not. Why? Could God turn your walk with him into a water park, for crying out loud? that stretches from Kadesh Barnea to the plains of Moab. He could, he's able, but he doesn't. It is not for a lack of supply that God doesn't cause the well to spring up every step you take. There will come a day that's called heaven, but it's not this day. In the meantime, we have the desert to tread. And we trust him for his provision. It's almost as though God wants you to trust in him to provide for you. You must lean upon him between the wells now, you'll notice something else. You know the last time we saw the Israelites sing a song like this was on the distant bank of the Red Sea. It's been a long time since we've seen the Israelites really praise God. Now, I, I say that to their shame. Would you consider your own walk? Do you really only sing out praise to God when he has miraculously provided for you? Like, do your songs of praise coincide with the wells in the desert? Do you know that God is worthy of worship between the wells? He is worthy of worship when the water overflows and he's worthy of worship when your song of praise is raspy because your voice is dry for your thirst. He is worthy, Christian. You don't just wait until the next well, hold your praise hostage until God negotiates with you and gives you, gives you what you want. You give God praise when your throat is dry because he's worthy. You give God praise by the well because he's worthy. You give God praise when your abundance overflows. You give God praise when you're standing by your child's graveside. Give him praise because he's worthy. It's been a long time since we've seen the Israelites praise like this. I want to talk about something else that's referred here in this text that may be a bit of a mystery to you. You know, like Pastor Jesse, I wondered if you were going to address this. Verse 14 mentioned a book that I don't see in my Bible, the book of the wars of the Lord. If you check back to your table of contents, you see it missing, you're like, I'm sorely disappointed because that sounds like an awesome book. <laughs> now, you can imagine that the book of the wars of the Lord is kind of a foregone conclusion. When the Lord makes war, well, he's, he wins, Okay. He's just going to win. So in a way, it'd be a very dull book. <laughs> you would know how it ends every, in every scenario. I believe, and I posit humbly, 
this could be the same text as the book of Jasher, meaning the book of uprightness. Because the book of Jasher is referred to at multiple points, such as 2 Samuel 1, 19 through 27. It's referred to, I think it's the text that's referred to in Exodus 17, 14, where Moses is recording for Joshua the annals of historic battles won by the Israelites. Consider this, Exodus 17, 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Likewise, Joshua 10, 13, referring to the book of Joshua, and the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Joshua? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. So it is possible that the book of Joshua and the book of the wars of the Lord are the same text. They are mentioned by this name only here in scripture and nowhere else. But it is possible that this is the same text as the book of the wars of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 takes us face to face with this imagery of Jesus on the cross and what it signifies. Step to the New Testament era and see Jesus on the cross and consider the significance of the moment. What are you looking at when you see Jesus nailed to the cross? It is more than a man affixed to wood. Do not, like Nicodemus, miss the significance of the imagery. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When you look to Jesus on the cross, you're seeing the sinless one made to be sin. You see your sins affixed to the cross so that you would bear them no more. Then Jesus did not stay on the cross, amen? He, after dying, rose again from the dead, proving his victory over sin. But when you see Jesus on the cross, according to 2 Corinthians 5, you're seeing the sinless one made to be sin. Did you know that sin is to blame for your every last affliction? The root cause of everything in this life that is short of Eden, short of perfection, is to be blamed upon sin itself. The Garden of Eden was perfect. There was no cancer in the Garden of Eden. There were no lies in the Garden of Eden. There was no pride in the Garden of Eden. There was no racism in the Garden of Eden. It was perfection. And then, then what entered the picture? Sin. And now ever since sin, the Apostle Paul describes all of creation itself as groaning and waiting to be made perfect again. And by God's grace, it will in heaven. But in the meantime, we still groan. In the meantime, we deal with this affliction. We deal with the effects of sin, the original sin, the fall of mankind that has affected all of us. Your cancer can be attributed ultimately to sin's introduction into the world. The consequences you suffer for your sin is your own sin's fault. And sometimes you are collateral damage in the sins of others. 
Sin is to blame for every last source of affliction in this life. And when you look to Jesus upon the cross, you are looking to the source of your affliction. Just as the serpent was raised up in the desert and everybody would look to the serpent, they would see depicted there the source of their affliction. As they would look to the source of their affliction and believe, they'd be saved. Likewise, when you look to Jesus upon the cross, the source of your affliction, he, the sinless one, personified as sin, that you might become the righteousness of God, you will be saved, my friend. As it was in Numbers 21, so it is here right now at Highlands Community Church. If you would look to Jesus on the cross, you would see there your sin nailed. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and be saved. Here is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Hello. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, a title given prophetically to the Messiah, personified by Jesus, prophesied in Daniel, personified in Jesus and Jesus alone. And Moses, look at this, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, that's Jesus, be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus, in the beautiful full context, referred to today's text, Numbers 21, to show the Old Testament foreshadowing of a New Testament truth. He said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, that everybody who looked at it would be healed of their affliction, so the Son of Man must be lifted up on the cross. Would you look to the cross today? See there, Christ, the sinless one, made sin, that you would become the righteousness of God. Look to the cross, see Jesus nailed there, and see your sin nailed with him. Look to the source of your affliction and so be saved. Just as it was in Numbers 21, so it is here and now. Would you look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to the cross and be saved. Just as the serpent was lifted up, so the Son of Man was lifted up. If you believe in Jesus right here and now, you would be saved. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Would you pray those words out to God? And would you pray John 3.16 out to God? Tell Jesus you believe him. Tell him you believe him when he said John 3.16. Tell him you believe him when he said John 14.6. Nobody else went to the cross. Nobody else was lifted up like the serpent in the desert. Only Jesus. So only Jesus can save you. Would you go before God? Would you confess your sin to him? And Christian, if you've been wayward, would you come home remembering here upon the cross the cost of your sin? Let's go before our Savior together. God, 
We believe that just as the serpent was lifted up in the desert, so the Son of Man, Jesus, was lifted up. That if we would look to him and see him, though he knew no sin, made sin, we would become the righteousness of God. We would be saved from our affliction, just like the Exodus Israelites. God, I believe you. I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son, that if I would believe him, I would not die but have everlasting life. God, I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I confess and I believe that the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus. Nobody else was lifted up like the snake on the pole. Nobody else was lifted up on the cross but the Son of Man, Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the way. I believe that Jesus is the truth. I believe that Jesus is the life. And I believe there's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Jesus. So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, seeing my sin nailed to the cross and Jesus, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, both here in the overflow room, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you worship with us? Some of us for the very first time as brand new believers in Jesus Christ.